0: Hi, and welcome to The State of Shakespeare, I'm Jim Elliott. Garrett Vandermeer is away today in tech rehearsals, so it's just going to be me and Michael Yuri Hello, Michael.
1: Hello, how
0: are you? I am well. Let me give you a little bit of information about Mr. Yuri He is currently starring as Hamlet in the critically acclaimed production of Hamlet, directed by Michael Kahn at the Shakespeare Theatre Company in D.C. Previously, he starred in Red Bull Theater's acclaimed production of The Government Inspector, Harvey Fierstein's Torch Song Trilogy at the Second Stage Theatre. He originated the role of Alex Moore in Jonathan Poland's Buyer and Seller, appearing off-Broadway, in London, and on the PBS series Theatre Close-Up. Other New York credits include How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Shows for Days, Homos or Everyone in America, The Cherry Orchard, and Angels in America. He's appeared in theaters all over the country, and his TV credits include Gavin Sinclair on Modern Family, Younger Workaholics, The Good Wife, Hot in Cleveland, Partners, and Mark St. James on Ugly Betty. He currently hosts the Logo series Cocktails and Classics and has worked on the web series What's Your Emergency as the director. Thank you for being here, Michael. Oh, Thank you. My pleasure. You have been around, I got to say. Qu- <laughs> <laughs> I when you say it like that, I sound so old. Oh, no, God, no. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I stumbled upon Buyer and Seller one night on PBS and I was oh. just riveted.
1: Oh, thank you. That's great. Well, that, that was not quite like Shakespeare, but it was actually doing that play at the Harmon Center where I'm performing. Hamlet now, that first, I believe, gave Michael Kahn the idea to cast me as Hamlet. Really? Yeah, I think he saw me playing that role, which was a one-man show and lots of direct address, and he saw me talking to the audience and thought, oh, that would work for Hamlet. And then actually later he saw me in Homos or Everyone in America, which you just mentioned, which was another, it wasn't heightened language, but the language is very complicated, and I played a character named Writer. And he had big mood swings and lots of pontification. And I think the combination of watching me do all that direct address and buyer and seller in that big theater, and then the intricacies of of a mentally ambidextrous person (laughs) in homos convinced him. And and it it actually was in the lobby after the performance of homos that he asked me to play Hamlet.
0: That is fantastic. Speaking of Michael Kahn... is this his last production?
1: No, uh, technically this is his last Shakespeare production, and next year is his final season. They just yesterday announced next year's season, and he will be doing two shows in the season next year, and his final production in Washington will be The Oresteia.
0: Oh, wow. That's yeah. a big one. Subtle. Yes, <laughs> yes, subtle, exactly. It's subtle way to go. <laughs> right. So, what has it been like working with him on Hamlet?
1: Well, I mean, he was my teacher, first of all, I should say. He was my teacher at Juilliard, and uh, it wasn't really until I, I went to Juilliard that I truly discovered that I loved Shakespeare, and that it was something I wanted to do, and when I finished, it's really all I wanted to do. I mean, uh, my dream was to go around from theater to theater playing all the great roles in Shakespeare, and... That didn't happen, but, you know, other things did, and it was certainly wonderful, and, and I followed the path that was presented to me, but Shakespeare has always been very near to my heart, and I think a lot of that is because of the way that it was taught to me at school by Michael and his faculty. We spent the majority of time on Shakespeare when I was there, and got to work on many of the plays. I learned about so many of them, worked on so many different scenes and monologues and and, and productions and by the end of it, I, I thought, "Why would we do anything else?" <laughs> and in <laughs> fact, in fact, at the opening night of of Hamlet, i I leaned over to Michael and I said, "Whenever I do Shakespeare, I think, why do we do anything else?" And he said sort of <laughs> slyly, he said, "Well, it's better." <laughs> <laughs> and it's well, true. I mean, it just is. It's it just better. I mean, you know, of course, there are amazing playwrights and, and other works that are valid and worthy and, and also brilliant like Shakespeare's. But my goodness, when you're playing Hamlet, it's sort of hard to remember that. It's, so I guess I'll say that, that, that as a director, he was very different than he was as a teacher. He, he expects a lot and he gives a lot. He's got 50 years of experience
0: in oh, Shakespeare. Oh, yeah, that's amazing.
1: He's directed Hamlet twice before. He's taught it, you know, for years and years and years. And he he really is a master at, at Shakespeare and at playing and at, at directing Shakespeare and telling the story. And this production is, he, he, you know, I, I spent some time with him before the rest of the cast arrived. And it was very helpful. And he had this concept in mind from the beginning i mean it, this was not he did not get into the room and figure it out he knew what he wanted to do he had after you know 50 years of studying this play come up with a hamlet that i think is accessible to anyone i mean i just 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 this minute finished a student matinee and
0: oh you must be exhausted
1: yeah well (laughs) ask that again later tonight after we do another show but i mean it's fun it's it's so thrilling and with students you know they really listen because they have no preconceived ideas about the play and with a play like hamlet it's hard to find people who don't and they do not they are experiencing it as it is being presented to them and between michael's concept and the way we attacked it which was very much for the point of clarity we wanted the audiences to get it you know I knew we had a dozen or so student matinees throughout the run and I knew that they would not be fun for any of us if they were't if the students didn't follow the play and I also knew that even though everyone has a preconceived idea about Hamlet specifically and Shakespeare in general and I mean you know they laugh at they laugh almost every night at something is rotten in the state of Denmark. And they laugh at get thee to a nunnery and thinks the lady doth protest too much. And, and it's like, I mean, the lady doth protest too much is funny. <laughs> but the other ones right. are, are not funny. They're not funny. It's not funny when I say get thee to a nunnery. But they laugh. And they laugh because... Our production, I think, makes so much clear that one might not normally get when seeing Hamlet or seeing Shakespeare. And and I think that's a testament to Michael. He insists upon clarity. Even though he knows what everything means already, if he doesn't hear the sense when you speak it, you know, he, he makes you do it again until you until he does, and to, and it helps you, and, and, you know, it helps you with what words should be stressed, you know, when to adhere to the iambic the pentameter and when to let it go, all that stuff. He's the master at it, and I think that's why after 30-some-odd years of, of this Shakespeare theater in Washington, he has trained on their ears. He's trained the, the audience in Washington to hear Shakespeare.
0: Uh, well, that's exciting. Uh, to work with someone who is so masterful. Yeah. But I have a quote of yours, if you don't mind me throwing your words at you. Oh, sure. I, I read that you said, what I realized quite quickly is what's going to be singular about my Hamlet is me, not any idea that I have. Did Michael help you with this realization, or how did this manifest itself on in your Hamlet? You know, I think as many actors do, we imagine how we'll play Hamlet
1: for many years before we get the chance to, if we're lucky to get the chance to. And I often thought what will my Hamlet be like you know and I played Horatio once to the great Hamish Linklater who was a brilliant no. Hamlet and truly to the manner born his he grew up at Shakespeare and Company at, in the Berkshires Kri Kristen. Kristen Linklater yeah. and, and I learned so much from him and and I, and I I I'm sure I owe a lot of what I'm doing I'm doing in my performance as Hamlet to him so I I, I imagine what would my Hamlet be like and what, 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 what would we do and and I, and so I had a bunch of ideas, you know, and, and when I arrived to start working with Michael, I shared them and, and he wanted them. He was very collaborative. But what I realized was like the big ideas that I had, you know, I had this idea that Pamlet, when he comes back from, from school in Wittenberg, he goes and moves back into his childhood bedroom. And then maybe <sighs> I would come out wearing my childhood pajamas or I would come out on my tricycle or, or oh playing with God. a, playing with a basketball. And, and and that my madness or my my antic disposition that I put on I should say would be this sort of becoming a child again and that you know very quickly he he entertained it and he 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 sort of let me explore that idea but we'd always go back to the text and the text says that the antic disposition that he puts on is to throw them off the scent I mean right. basically he does this so he he makes them think that he is crazy so that. They won't think that he is on to Claudius. Right. He thinks as long as they think I'm crazy, then I can keep learning and I can keep gathering intelligence. And then in our production, there's a lot of spying. Our production is modern. It sort of feels like it's a it's a newly authoritarian state where Claudius has implemented these new authoritarian rules, there's guards, there's secret service always looming. There are security cameras. In fact, they see the ghost through security footage at first. Oh. After I kill Polonius, there's all this footage of me carrying him around, looking for a place to stow the body. <laughs> it's really fun, it's really it's really exciting. And because of the spying, you know, actually when they send Ophelia to me for the nunnery scene, when they, they send her in and say, read on this book, what Ophelia doesn't know is they have put a bug inside the book and they're off listening. And then I discover the bug. And that's why that scene turns in the way that it turns. Which is something you always have to sort of figure out for yourself when you know when you're doing that that scene, the Hamlet Ophelia relationship. You sort what of happens have to there. figure out. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the things ha- that Shakespeare doesn't tell you. He tells you so much, but one of the things he doesn't tell you is: Does Hamlet realize that he's being spied on there? And I think. It, it's helpful if he does. It's helpful as to why he destroys Ophelia in that moment. It makes him less of a monster, that's for sure. Exactly, it makes him less, makes him seem like less of a monster. And in our production, the scene where you know, the scene where um, Hamlet comes in reading the words, words, words scene, where mm-hmm. look, look where the poor wretch comes reading. Well, in our production, I've actually come in. Several lines earlier, unbeknownst to them, and I'm overhearing their conversation. And the conversation that I overhear is Polonius telling the king and queen that I'm mad because of my love for Ophelia. So before I've even put the antic disposition on, they tell me what it is. And Polonius says, This is why he's mad. This is why he's been behaving this way. When really I've been behaving that way before, you know, up until the point where I, I, I see the ghost, I'm depressed. You're right. You're sad. Right. I'm sad because of my father and, and and because my mother married my uncle. And so Hamlet in our productions, but very specifically, Hamlet hears him say that and picks up on that. And that is the madness he lets them into. That's the that's the antic disposition that he puts on for them.
0: So this goes all the way back to homo or everyone in America and you being mentally ambidextrous. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that was something that,
1: I mean, one of the things that Michael helped me with the most is allowing myself to be emotionally ambidextrous, allowing myself to, in one scene, be a complete emotional and nervous wreck, and then in the next scene have all my faculties and be charming and a great host. You know, for example, in our production, To Be or Not To Be happens right after the fishmonger scene, right after Words, Words, Words. Oh, wow. Before Rosencrantz and Guildenstern come in. And it's very effective because not only have I no idea how to pursue this revenge I've been commanded to by my father, but now I know that Polonius and the King and Queen are not only only on to me for being crazy, but now they're going to use Ophelia... To get more information out of me. I can't trust them at all. And and I have no idea how to follow this path. And I am at my lowest moment. And to me, it, it makes perfect sense that at that point he would consider suicide. You've been totally isolated. Yeah, who can I trust? There's nobody. And then here come Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, who I also can't trust. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> but when they come in, I have to be my old self. And so I go from to be or not to be, actually contemplating suicide, to charming school chum. And then the, the, the players come in and I'm a consummate host. Yep. And then they leave and it's, it's oh, what a rogue peasant slave am I? And that's, I've got a plan, I'm gonna put it into action, here we go. And then in most versions of the play, the next time you see him is to be or not to be. It's never made sense to me because he's got a plan in motion. He's gonna put on this play. Why would he kill himself now? He, he should at least wait and see what happens at the
0: play. <laughs> Right.
1: So then, Ophelia comes in the uh, the nunnery scene, which is horrible and painful and emotionally exhausting. And and then, literally a page later, is speak the speech, which is a a comedy scene. I mean, there's no other way to look at it. It's just a no. It is absolutely. So Hamlet is able to go from one extreme to another very quickly, and that was something that Michael gave me great license to do, and I can't imagine it other, any anyway, other way. I mean, I know sometimes Hamlet is always broody and always depressed, but I don't know how you play, I don't know how you track that the whole time. I just don't know how that... Well,
0: I mean, I don't think that makes for good theater either. I mean, it's not interesting after the third or fourth time we see a broody, depressed Hamlet. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> so how did you prepare for the role of Hamlet?
1: I was very lucky, I have to say. In so many ways, I was very lucky.
0: I had a week on my own just with the
1: director, not a week, but like, you know, several days just with the director and me at the table talking about the play. And that is so vital. I mean, there is so much to learn before you ever stand up. And there are so many decisions to be made about which way to take a certain moment. Or, and there are so many answers to be found in the text yes he gives you so much shakespeare yeah. there's so many answers in the text and, and and so often when you think what what do i feel about this it's that you didn't find it yet in the text and, and you just have to look deeper or sometimes maybe look back at something that's cut or, you know, look up some more words that you think you know, but maybe you don't know.
0: Unpack the text, figure out where the thoughts begin and end.
1: Yes, yes. And why they happen when they happen. And, and I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gone back and looked up a word that I thought I knew and it made it clear. Yes. Just re- reinvesting in what a, a word means, knowing it for yourself, and saying it with actually knowing it. You know, actually knowing the word when you say it. It seems like an easy thing, but it actually, knowing what you're saying makes makes such a difference when you're actually speaking it aloud. And with Shakespeare, you know, speaking it aloud makes it clearer than reading it, I think. I think it's a lot easier to understand when you say it.
0: Particularly when you know what you're saying and you've done all that work, It does come to life. Well, it certainly leads to the speech that I wanted to talk to you with, or have you do at least. Would you mind doing a little bit of the I have of late, but wherefore I know not? Sure. So first of all, before we get into the nuts and bolts of it, who are you talking to?
1: Well, in our version, I'm talking to Rosencrantz and
0: Guildenstern. And what, what has just happened? Set the scene for us so we have a little bit of background. So
1: essentially, they've come in totally
0: unannounced. I haven't seen them forever.
1: We aren't close anymore. I don't dislike them. I'm, I'm I'm not unhappy to see them, but it is a surprise. You know, we have some small talk. We talk about what they're up to and and why they're there. And, and then I say, all right, let's get down to brass tacks. Why are you here? Were you sent for? And they dance around the question until I finally really press them on it and say, I know you were. Just say you were. And one of my favorite lines is there is a kind of confession in your looks which your modesties have not crafted enough to color. Oh, uh, Basically beautiful. saying, you guys are terrible liars.
0: It's like their <laughs> cheeks are red and their eyes are, like, Yeah, exactly, dark and <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> and uh, they say, we, we were sent for. They finally say, yes, we were sent for. And I say, all right, I'll tell you why. And I say, so shall my anticipation prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen mold no feather. And then at that point, they are completely untrustworthy. I know that everything I say to them will go back to the king and queen. I cannot trust them. I can't give them any information that I don't want shared with the king and queen, and I must proceed with caution.
0: So this is Michael Urie doing Hamlet, act two, scene two, from the play Hamlet.
1: I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of exercises. And indeed, it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, yourth, Seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you, this brave and overhanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why it appeareth no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. No, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so.
0: Thank you so much. Sure. My pleasure. In your production, this is true what he's saying. It's not, he's not dissembling or setting them up or anything.
1: It is at once a performance for them, but I also think it's absolutely true. I mean, this is moments in our production, moments after To Be or Not To Be.
0: This is coming right after To Be or Not To Be. Yes. And
1: only a day after, oh, that this tutu solid flesh. So that was, you know, Hamlet wants to literally die and then actually considers doing it himself and now has resolved himself that he can't, but the truth is he thinks of the world as a sterile promontory, and the air as a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors, and a man, a body, a person, as a quintessence of dust. He thinks it's all just stuff. So this is true. No, I think this is exactly how he feels. He's just giving them a part of the truth that he's okay with sharing with everybody. And that doesn't contradict what's really going on with him and doesn't contradict the story they are telling themselves. So the story they're telling themselves is about Ophelia, and his madness is all based in love. And none of this contradicts that. He just doesn't mention Ophelia to them.
0: He Well, he says no, nor woman, neither. Right. But that's not Ophelia. That's just like, no, I'm not. That's right. That's
1: really about, like, I'm not talking about men and women. I'm talking about mankind. You know, it's like, it's like that old saying, always tell the truth. It's the easiest thing to remember. Right.
0: <laughs> he says, this is the way I look- at the world right now.
1: He says, this is what I'm dealing with right now. This is how I feel right now. And it's true. That is how he feels. That is a natural progression from too too solid flesh to to be or not to be to what a piece of work is man. It is a natural progression.
0: Although one could say that he is, he's making this up or he's dissembling in order to play to his audience the untrustworthy Rosencrantz and Guildenstern.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and that he doesn't actually feel that way, but he does say in solid flesh, that it is an unweeded garden that grows to seed, and things rank and gross possess it merely. So it definitely tracks.
0: There's a resonance. So that eliminates one of my questions, which is, what do you think is a man a paragon of animals or a quintessence of dust? I think you've answered that one.
1: Yeah, even though I know and agree that there is very little sarcasm in Shakespeare, I think that when he says that man is the paragon of animals, man is the beauty of the world, he says that because He does not believe that. That is what is commonly known, but to him, it's a quintessence of
0: dust. So you were talking about tracking from one speech to the next. Now, this speech is in prose, which is a little different. And then there's another, my personal favorite speech from this play is, there's a special providence in the fall of a sparrow, Yeah, which is the other really beautiful prose speech. Can you compare those two? Is there a track from this speech to that one?
1: Yes, and I think on the way you stop at "Alas, poor Yorick," because between "Quintessence of Dust" and "The Fall of a Sparrow," the readiness is all. There is "Alas, poor Yorick," which is really about—it's really about how fame is fleeting, and about how we are all of the same stuff. Because what Hamlet discovers there is, you know, he's been thinking about death the whole play. Totally. And then here he is in a grave, talking to a gravedigger, and the gravedigger hands him the skull of a guy he knew.
0: Yeah, I think that's lost on a lot of audiences, just because of the skull and the york, it's so well known. But, like, the idea of holding someone's skull that you knew yes. is really profound. It's very profound. And this is something that Michael Kahn was really helpful with me
1: because because he, re- I mean, he really helped me put these speeches, you know, the, this arc of death together. And that Hamlet, when Hamlet comes back after being sent to England, he is a changed man. He has killed. He has discovered the truth about everything really right. and now knows for certain that claudius wanted him dead and that rosencrantz and gildenstern whether or not they knew that's what they were doing were complicit and and has sent them to their death and, and now it's faced with the skull of a man he knew and realizes that he himself hamlet a prince will be just like that one day. And he uses the most famous person in history, Alexander the Great. Yep. And he asks Horatio, "Just, thou think Alexander the Great looked at this fashion of the earth? And that's when he realizes it doesn't matter who you are. I'm not saved from this because I'm a prince. Neither is the king. Neither is my father. We're all going to, you know,
0: we're, we will all...
1: And that I can
0: see how that would lead directly to special providence.
1: Yes, yes. It's not about when we die. It's about being ready for it. And always being, you know, because his father wasn't. There. That's, that's, I think, something that is uh, another, you know, like his father died with all his imperfections on his head, as he says. And that's why he's trapped in purgatory. And the one chance he had... The, to kill his uncle. He couldn't right. because he was praying. Now, what Hamlet doesn't know is he was not actually able to pray, right. but he looked like he was praying and he and he was, seemed like he was praying and it would not be revenge to send his uncle to heaven while his father is burning in purgatory. He has to catch his uncle sinning and not absolved of his sins. And so Hamlet now knows that death will come at some point or another. And, 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 and it is to be ready for that and to be absolved. And I believe, I mean, you know, whether or not I believe in heaven and hell myself it is irrelevant, but I believe in, in Hamlet's mind, he does go to heaven. And when he dies, he is absolved. I mean, yes, he should not have killed Polonius. No. And he repents and he is forgiven by Laertes
0: for both deaths.
1: For, for his father's death and Laertes' death.
0: Well, this has been Michael, you are a delight. Oh, thank you, and
1: as are you. This is I'm so glad you're doing this podcast, uh, I, and I can't wait to listen.
0: How long does the show run? We close March 4th. March 4th. So if people want information about your Hamlet at the Shakespeare Theatre in D.C., how would they find it?
1: Shakespearetheater.org, theater TheatreTheatra.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, there's just tickets available. It's a, it's a good one. I, I, I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of what we're doing and, and certainly purists who are naysayers about the kind of production we're doing but but there are people who who are afraid of Shakespeare or don't like Shakespeare or think I think they've never really enjoyed Hamlet who are having a great time and and I think that even though it's modern dress I feel like what we're doing is closer to what the original Elizabethan saw when they went to see Hamlet. They enjoyed themselves, they had fun, and and it was entertainment.
0: Entertaining now through March 4th. Yes. So nice of you to join us. Thank you so much. Oh, my
1: pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and, and I look
0: forward to hearing it. And have a great show tonight. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. I'll see you around the neighborhood. Yep. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com.
1: Thanks for listening.